On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, should the city be spending more money to hurry up and clean bike lanes in snowstorms? It's kind of goofy, isn't it? We're going to talk about that. The TV right now, your TV, if you're flipping channels, you guaranteed are going to come across a Hallmark Christmas movie. They are the staple of December TV. One of the writers who's done a bunch of these movies joins us to talk about it. And Don Robertson and I chat about the NHL's player safety department, which is a mess. All that coming up on the podcast. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Some people clearly want to ride their bicycles, not just in the bike lanes, not just during the summertime, but in the bike lanes in winter, presumably in the middle of a driving blizzard. This seems to be an issue in this city. I I mean, one can only assume this is an issue in the city because city planning has come forward with a proposal that has gone to council. Now they're going to debate this. This has not happened yet. But the idea is that the city would... Put the speed, put the foot to the metal, although there would be no cars in the area, but put the foot to the metal to clean bike lanes in a snow situation. That it is urgent that we get bike lanes cleared when the snow is falling. And that we, we don't know how much this is going to cost yet. Now, this could be a reason why we end up ultimately as a city not doing this. I don't know. They don't have a cost estimate for this yet because possibly it could involve extra equipment. But what the city is proposing, what the planning department is proposing is that, or public works, pardon me, uh, if 2.5 centimeters of snow falls in the city, so an inch, give or take, if an inch of snow falls, bike lanes have to be cleared under their proposal within eight hours. We have to get out there and make sure every bike lane in this city is clear within eight hours so that the bike lane network can be used in the event that people want to ride their bikes in the middle of the driving snow. Now, there are people who are diehard cyclists, I grant you. I'm not against it. I I am I remain somewhat agnostic about the whole bike lane concept. It's expensive. It takes up lanes. We can have this debate. That's not what this is about. We have bike lanes. So We'll deal with the bike lanes. And there are people out there who clearly are avid enough that they would ride their bikes. Doesn't matter how cold, doesn't matter how wet, doesn't matter how snowy, doesn't matter how anything. That said, I would argue that if you were probably out there on a really wintry, snowy day, the number of people in this city riding their bikes in the bike lanes is not a large number. We're talking about a small number of people, but we are proposing putting forward this idea so that with if you have two and a half centimeters of snow, it must be cleaned within eight hours. Now, keep in mind what this compares to. Because the standards for sidewalks for the city, which I would argue are much more important to get cleaned quickly because there are not a lot of senior citizens or, well, there's not, start with seniors riding their bikes on the bike lanes. There's a lot more seniors who would be walking on the sidewalks. There's a lot more people who would be using the sidewalks. You, if you have to get to eight centimeters of snow before anything kicks in for the city here, and then they have cleaning. And when snow ends, you have 48 hours to clean the sidewalk. It, so what we're talking about, as I understand it, 
is a proposal that would make the city of Hamilton responsible to clean bike lanes far more quickly than they would have to clean public sidewalks. And by the way, you do know that you have to clean your sidewalk in front of your house if it's snowing. That's within the bylaw as well. But I just can't believe that we're going down this path. I can't believe that if we are bound and determined that we are going to spend more money on services like this, that we are bound and determined that we have to get active in the snow more to clean stuff up. I cannot believe that the thing that we've decided is the priority is that we have to clean our bike lanes in a blizzard, in a heavy snowstorm, before we would clean the sidewalks. As far as I'm concerned, you do the sidewalks, and then if you've got equipment available, you go and you do the bike lanes. Now, as I say, I understand there are avid bikers, avid cyclists who would say, no, 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 you got that all wrong. Because if you're on a bike, it's slippery and someone could fall. Yeah, they could. You could. There would be other people who would say, if it's a blizzard outside, probably if you slip and fall on your bike, it's because you shouldn't be riding your bike in a blizzard. Nonetheless, I want to hear what you have to say about this, because to me, this seems like a ludicrous proposal. If we're going to buy, and the reason we don't know if we're going to do this yet, because again, we don't know what the cost, I don't know if it means more equipment, whatever, but our priority should be getting side streets cleaned because we we're slow on that one. We know that one is slow. Getting side streets cleaned, getting main streets, of course, cleaned, and getting our sidewalks cleaned, and then doing the bike lanes. Because to me, it seems the number of people this impacts is so tilted against the bike lanes in these circumstances. Again, I'm not talking about summertime, and we're not talking about the concept in general of bike lanes. We're talking about in a specific circumstance of a snow condition, of a snow situation. Why are we doing this before we're doing the other things? We only have limited staff. We don't have endless people working for the city of Hamilton to do this. Let's prioritize this. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking about bike lanes. There's a proposal put in front of city council that we should have new rules that hurry up the cleaning of bike lanes in the city, really expedite the bike lane cleaning if there is snow falling. The new rule would say that once you hit two and a half centimeters of snow, the city would have only eight hours to get those bike lanes cleared. Now, that compares to the fact that on sidewalks that the city looks after, they don't even have to start looking at clearing it until there's eight centimeters of accumulation. And then you have 48 hours to get rid of all of it. So in other words, as I understand it, what the city would be looking at here is saying, we have much more urgency to clear bike lanes than sidewalks of snow, which to me makes absolutely zero sense because we're talking not about bike lanes in the summer. And again, we can have the debate about whether bike lanes are a good idea or not. I know everyone has their opinion. That's not the debate today. We have bike lanes. The issue is if we are in the middle of a winter storm or a heavy winter snowfall, how many people are truly, now there may be a few out there going, I would, but how many people are truly getting out in their bikes and riding around in those lanes compared to how many people are using sidewalks? It makes no sense. And yet this is being put in front of council. We don't know the cost. Hopefully, I'm hoping, I'm truly hopeful that we find out the cost for this is going to be massive so the council will say, come on, that's just stupid. 
What do you think about this? 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Good idea, bad idea, something in between. Frank joins me now. Frank, how are you tonight? I'm quite well, uh, Scott. Uh, I agree with you 100%. I, I was never in favor of bike lanes anyway because I'd like to see them at least be licensed, whereas we have to drive on the road. license. But that's, that's beside this point. But you know what? Um, I'd like to see... Um, this happened once in, in, in North York when Mel Aspen was um, mayor up there before he came in. He had, he had his tenure at Mayor of Toronto. And he had the uh, a little a guy riding behind a, a, the snowplow with a shovel. And, and when they came by your, your driveway and they, they plowed it in after you plowed it out, this, this shovel would come along and, and clear your driveway entry. Well, that's. You know, it, I thought that was worth the bucks. That yeah. that would be worth it. Now, Frank, what about this though? That that's a different topic for another day. What about this idea? Are you in favor of expediting the bike lane cleaning or no? Uh, I'm not in favor of it, like uh, at all, because uh, you know I want to be fair. But uh, Scott, like you say, what's the percentage of people who ride a bike in the lane in the wintertime? Very, very low. Uh, I, that, Frank, listen, I, pre- I appreciate that. Thank you. No, I agree. I, the, the number is incredibly low that would use this. We need, if we've got limited staff and we have limited staff in this city and we have limited equipment, we need to get the sidewalks clean. We need to get the side streets cleaned that sit there. Sometimes many of you listening right now know exactly what I'm talking about because you've been through this, where you there is a snowstorm, a snowfall and a side street sits there uncleaned for a good long while. Not because the people doing the city of Hamilton work are bad at their job, because there's limited staff and limited equipment. We can't have a plow for every street. You have to prioritize. So what's this going to mean? We're going to have a bunch of new staff just to handle the bike lane cleaning. We're going to hire a bunch of new equipment. If we're going to spend this money, let's spend it on something that has the biggest impact. If we're going to have money for these kind of things, let's have the biggest possible impact, not cleaning bike lanes, for the four people in the middle of a storm who are going to be out there using it. That, to me, is absolutely ludicrous and wasteful and pie-in-the-sky dreaming that somehow we are now Amsterdam and we're going to have hordes of cyclists in the middle of a blizzard say, i got to get out there and ride my bike because it's now bike lane time. No, they're not going to do that. Oh, I just lost John. John, I'm sorry. I pressed too many buttons. Call back. I'd love to have you on. We'll get John back in just a moment. 905-645-3221, star 9900. Oh, Jordan, how are you tonight, Jordan? Oh, pretty good. How are you? I'm good. What do you think about this idea? Well, I think I, I two problems and, and one solution. Okay. One's the um, snow clearing of the bike lanes, and the other problem is the, the bikes on the roads in general. I've always kind of believed that they should still be on the sidewalks and I think if they were back on the sidewalks then and then the snow clearing goes along with it, then that kind of kills both uh, problems. Well, one of the interesting things about this, Jordan, is that the, the bylaw for the city of Hamilton says that if you're cleaning your your driveway, you are not permitted. First of all, you have to clear your sidewalk. You can't put more snow on it, and you're not supposed to dump your snow onto the road. Yeah. So now if you're going to clear the bike lanes which are boarded on one side usually by a sidewalk and on the other by the roads, you're either breaking your own bylaw or you're going to have to have some extra equipment that's going to scoop it up and carry it away, which to me is even more expensive now. Yeah, and not so much uh, clearing the bike lane, but if they, if they moved bikes uh, back onto the sidewalk in general, and 
and just had the uh, city clear clear those lanes, it would help uh, people not have to clear their own sidewalks, and it would help uh, keep both the sidewalks and the bike lanes clear. Jordan, I appreciate your I appreciate your call. Thanks for that today. Really do appreciate okay. it. Uh, look, I really do hope this comes in that when they do the financials on this, that we find out that this is going to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars because that may be the only way that we get council to look at this and go, this is a really dumb idea. We need, we have priorities in this city. We have priorities in this city. And I can't believe that prioritizing cleaning snow out of the bike lanes is at the top of that list. Sorry for the cyclists out there. And let me once again say, I'm not talking about summertime stuff. We should have the bike lanes rideable and clear. We've put them in. We need, they need to be clear for the summertime, but not in the winter. Come on. No one's using them. Very few people are using them in the winter. Let's, let's put our priorities where they need to be. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. If you've been anywhere near a television set since probably about the middle to the end of November, there is a very, very high probability that as you were flipping channels, you have come across a Hallmark Christmas movie. They've become the thing. Uh, Some of you will say, well, great. It's about time we had more of them. Others of you are rolling your eyes so hard now that you can actually hear grinding in your head. But this is the case. Hallmark has pumped out on its movie Christmas movie assembly line 37 Christmas movies this year with names like Pride, Prejudice, and Mistletoe, A Gingerbread Romance, Christmas at Graceland, as in Elvis's Home, filmed at Graceland, and of course, Christmas in Love. And if you've watched any of these, you probably know the formula a little bit, but nobody knows that formula and how to make these work better than my next guest. He is a writer who has often been brought in to make Hallmark Christmas movies. Hallmark-y, I guess, is the word I would use. Originally from Dundalk, Ontario, which is about halfway between here and Tobermory. Uh, Ron Oliver has 10 of these movies on his resume. He joins us now. Ron, thanks for doing this today. Hey, Scott, my pleasure. This has really become a huge Christmas industry unto itself, these Hallmark movies. Yeah, it's uh, it kind of we've been doing them for a while, but suddenly this year it seems to have hit the public consciousness in a way that none of us were expecting. Um, I was uh, directing uh, the movie I did this year, Christmas Everlasting, and um, we were sort of chatting about it on set, saying, yeah, you know, you're starting to feel that maybe everybody's aware of these pictures, and and there's a certain responsibility that comes with making them. So we all sort of had to kind of stand a little straighter as we were shooting the film. We shot that in Atlanta, Georgia, and. Trying to make a Christmas movie in Atlanta in the summertime. <laughs> the temperatures are 92, and the uh, my extras are standing around the background wearing winter coats and scarves and hats. It's a little daunting, um, but I like directing in shorts, so I don't mind. Yeah, th- but for all the extras, the deodorant budget goes way up when you got to wear those winter coats in Atlanta in the summertime. Um, and the, and the, re- the retouches on the actors when the sweat fills yeah. the makeup <laughs> off their faces between setups. You can actually watch their eyelashes fall off during takes. We will look more carefully next time we watch it, for sure. How do you find your way? How does a guy from Ontario who, you have a background, obviously, in the entertainment industry, but how did you find your way into this? Oh, uh, you know, it's weird. I was, um, 
I started out in horror. You know, I made uh, of course a couple of prom night movies, and uh, I did Goosebumps and and Are You Afraid of the Dark series stuff. And um, I just I, I don't know. You know, I, I got asked one day about 15 years ago to do a movie called Chasing Christmas that was um, uh, with Tom Arnold and Andrea Roth, who's from Cremor, Ontario, and uh, and uh, Leslie Jordan, and we shot that in about 2004. And it did some money, and they liked it. It was a TV movie, but they loved it. So I did another Christmas picture, um, a Dennis the Menace Christmas for Warner Brothers, and and then it just kept doing. I mean, I've done other stuff. I do thrillers, and I do comedies, and I do pictures at Universal. I, I, I do studio films and TV movies and the whole deal and indie stuff. So it's across the board. But the, the Christmas movie seems suddenly to capture people's consciousness in a way that, that I didn't expect. And, and I I get all sorts of mail and a lot of mail, actually, emails and messages and stuff from people saying how much they love these films and how much they mean to them over the over the holiday season. So it's it's very rewarding. I'll say that. Well, there is, and I, I hope I'm not being insulting, but I'm sure there's nothing I'm going to say you haven't heard before because there is a certain oh, I'm sure there is a certain schmaltz level to these. There's no doubt or, or cheesiness or whatever you want to call. I don't know what the right word is, but you know, I was thinking about this the other day and. If you look back at the Christmas movies from back in the 50s and 40s and before, they were all very uplifting, very kind of schmaltzy, cheesy, very happy Christmas movies. And then we got away into something a little more cynical and a little grittier. It seems like we're just coming back to sort of where Christmas movies started. I think that's true. I think what, it's, what it is is a reaction to the, the culture we're in right now. Um, in the 90s and maybe into the aughts, there was a real sense of irony and the notion that, that anything emotional or or sensitive, or thoughtful, or anything that believed in love, you know, anything that was sentimental at all, was looked down on mm. because we were too hip for that. And I think we've seen the result of that, which is a culture we live in right now, a culture of cynicism, and a culture of irony, and, and a culture where people are yelling and screaming at each other a lot. And I think the popularity of these films is a reaction to um, to the uh, uh, that kind of culture. I think people are loving these movies because they are... They wear their, heart, their hearts very clearly on their sleeves and say, we are uh, uh, emotional and sentimental and romantic, and we believe in love and kisses and hugs and Christmas and all that stuff, and we believe in it wholeheartedly, and I think people are reacting to that. Because of what you just said, though, and you mentioned before you had started in horror and other things, was there any hesitation on your part when you were asked to do the first one that you were thinking, I don't know if I'm cut out to be doing a Christmas movie along these lines? Was there any hesitation? Not really, because I'm like the biggest Christmas queen in the world. <laughs> I love Christmas. And it's it's crazy. I've got like our house is decorated at the wazoo. And um, I've always been a big fan of Christmas. I always have a Christmas party on Christmas night. And I got married on Christmas night. I mean, I I, I love Christmas. So I, I jumped at the chance to do the first one. And then as they go along, what happens is you, get to, you sort of finesse what you're doing. You know, you know it pretty well and, and you try to make them better and better and, and polish the idea so much and uh, the whole idea of a career I think is you, you I've always wanted to be like in the studio system where you were assigned pictures you know back in the day in the 30s and 40s of Hollywood you were given these films and, and the actors and you went on and you made your movies and it was a really great system because as a director you got to tell all different stories and, and got to use every possible crayon in the box and the Christmas movies are just they're just part of that. I'm 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 kind of lucky in that while the perception is I make Christmas films nonstop twenty four seven, they're actually a relatively small part of what I do, but there's they've got so much attention to them that I'm just delighted by the uh, by the very idea that people are reacting this way. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on nine hundred CHML.
Is it insulting to suggest that there is a template or a bit of a formula for many of these movies? Not at all, because there's a formula for every movie. Um, I've always been of the impression that all movies are The Wizard of Oz. All movies start out with somebody someplace they don't want to be. They go on an adventure and they either go back to the place that they were in the first place and change person, or they end up in some new place. And all right. That's the basic formula for all films. I mean, Star Wars is, is The Wizard of Oz. You know, Gone with the Wind is The Wizard of Oz. So I've always figured, well, okay, so there's a formula for all of this stuff. And in terms of a Hallmark movie, um, we tend to have somebody who, uh, if you're doing a Christmas picture for Hallmark, your lead character is usually someone who either loves Christmas or hates Christmas. One or the other. <laughs> okay. And they, they'll, they'll often not like really Christmas is not a thing for them. I wrote a song last year in our movie, we did The Christmas Train. And one of the songs in the picture I wrote is called Christmas is Not My Thing. And it was about, you know, somebody who, they, they just don't get Christmas. And then during the course of the adventure of the movie, they're exposed to all the Christmassy stuff and they realize that they've loved it all along. And they usually fall in love with somebody. It usually starts out with some lady who lives in the city. Yes. And she's going to go back to her Very successful. Town. Very successful lady, very by the way. Yep. Very successful. But she's not happy. She's not happy. So she's going uh, to go back to her small town or a small town. Usually there's, a, there's some sort of a, a car disability happens or the plane gets <laughs> rerouted. You know, or, or I, won't, I wrote one last year where she went up a lottery ticket to Jamaica, and then she finds out she's actually going to, like, Jamaica, Wisconsin. So she ends up in this small town, you know, <laughs> and, and while she's there, she'll often meet a fellow who wears a lot of flannel. He's probably uh, a single father, likely widowed, <laughs> and um, very often he'll own a Christmas tree ranch where they have free-range Christmas trees, you know. And she'll happen to end up there, and they don't like each other at the beginning. I always kid people that, they, you know, at the beginning of the picture, they don't like each other. I don't want to tell you what happens at the end. So by the end of the picture, of course, she's been exposed to Christmas. They fall in love. They all live happily ever after. And usually the town tends to come together. Sometimes the town's at, at fractions. You know, they're, they're, they're not all getting on, and maybe the, 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 the chimney sweep is, is angry with a bricklayer or something. You know, but by the end of the thing, they're all shaking hands and kissing babies and making snowmen in the park. And, and the town, by the way, in every single one of these, uh, is the most Christmassy town in the history of the world. Either that or it's un-Christmassy and they have to Christmas it up. And it's funny, we were talking about this earlier today, um, that it's harder and harder to find these small towns. You know, we tend to create these small towns um, out, of, out of whole cloth. We'll have to, like, use one piece of one town, one piece of another town, and bring them all together. And I was raised um, partly in a town called Dundalk, as you mentioned earlier, and when I was a kid, Dundalk was the Christmasiest town ever. I was like five years old, and the, the streets were lined with snow, and all the store windows had Christmas decorations, and there was a Christmas tree in the middle of town. And it's all of that that I remember when I'm making these movies, and I go back and try to recreate that thing for the uh, the home audience. But no, at no Although, point... I, 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 sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, having said that, I was listening to your weather report just now, and I'm thinking, you know, I was complaining this morning because it was 23 degrees here, and I had to put a sweater on. And I'm thinking, well, you know, maybe I made the right life choice by getting on a Dundalk. Uh, you didn't make a poor life choice, let's put it that way. Uh, <laughs> but also, in the town, if you're going to walk down the street, there must, it seems anyway, there must be, you must stop and buy chestnuts from some vendor on the side of the road who's always there, and you must go for a skate in the town skating rink, and and then 
there seems to always somehow be a piece of mistletoe that lands in exactly the right place when you stop to talk and just suddenly realize it's above your head. I'm just adding extra things here, but th- there seem to be constants. Damn straight there is. And I'll tell you what else. Is when, you're skating, when you're skating on that rink, I'm going to guarantee you you're going to take a misstep and you're going to slide and tumble a little bit. And the object of your affection, whether it's someone you've got your eye on or a complete romantic stranger, is going to grab you and catch you and keep you from falling. And if you can throw in a puppy, even better, and some really ugly Christmas sweaters, I mean, you're, you're halfway there already. Well, we just did one where uh, in, in Christmas Everlasting, uh, they have a thing called Cookie Moss. And uh, uh, Patty LaBelle runs this cookie party out of her house. And everybody shows up in ugly sweaters and they make these cookies. And they all give them, then get ready. They don't eat the cookies. They box the cookies up and they take them to the local um, seniors' uh, retirement home where they give it to them for the spirit of Christmas to keep them all happy over the holidays. And likely as not, have their... their um, blood sugar uh, crash so you know it's, it's nothing says festivity quite like you know having way too many chocolate chip cookies ron the funny thing about this and we're we joke about this although it is somewhat predictable this way many of these things that you've talked about are in many of these movies but you are a creative guy as i say you've been in the movies and and as a creative person you've gone into this business i'm guessing to be able to flex those creative muscles and to do those things that allow you to express yourself. Is there ever a time when you're doing, because you've done 10 of these now, do you ever say, man, I wish I could just completely change up the formula and do something wild here? Or do you say, you know what, this is what people seem to love, so let's just stick with it? That's a good question. You know, sometimes you do. I'm I'm lucky, as I was saying, because a lot of the other films I do are quite different than these kind of movies. I I do slapstick, I do thrillers. So I get to exercise those muscles elsewhere. But when it comes time for a Christmas picture, you you know what the audience wants. It's not so much what they're expecting, because you try to surprise them with a different twist on the story. But you know what they want. They want to to feel good, and they want to have resolution, and they want to feel that that Christmas is one of those things that either brings people together or completely tears them apart. There's comfort no food. Ground when it comes to Christmas. Yeah, yeah. comfort food. And so you want to give people this. Absolutely. And, and, and you're right, though. Creatively, you know, do you feel constrained by it? I actually don't because they give me a lot of freedom in these movies. They say, here's the world we're trying to, to get to. Get us there in a way that makes everybody happy and, and enjoy it. And I write a lot of the stuff that I direct for them, and and it's uh, it's interesting. You do have that moment where you go, "Am I really going to do the gag on the ice rink again?" And you think, "Well, maybe there's a way to do it differently." You know, so you 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 go back there again and try to revisit it, you try to bring some fresh spark to it. Ron Oliver is his name. Uh, Hallmark movies are on all the time. I think they're on a marathon on one of our channels, W, I think, uh, all day and night. And Ron has had his hand in a lot of them. Ron, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this today. Thanks. Scott, absolutely my pleasure. My, and, and listen, if I can, just tell you one last thing, Scott. Sure. Merry Christmas. You as well. We will be watching for <laughs> your movies. Ron Oliver, thanks right. for doing this. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring Don Robertson in. From the Dundas Real McCoys, from ComChoice Realty, he is, uh, he is a busy man in the greater Dundas area, unless... He's involved with hockey, and then it's in the greater Flamborough area because your rink is still not finished and oh. will not be for quite a long time. There's no evidence it'll ever open again. I drove by on Sunday, and I'm thinking we haven't even started any renovations on our house, and we're closer to being done than that rink is. <laughs> yeah. It looks like they've just started. 
Pretty much. The exterior is getting closer, I suppose. There's a form to it. Well, it doesn't look like they've done much in the past, no hurry, few months. Yeah, no hurry. It's only hockey season and everyone's being put out. Every every fam, every fam hockey family in Dundas has been displaced. It's a disgrace. We'll be talking about that more another time because it really is a, um, it really is silly. Like, I don't know how long it's supposed to take to do this kind of thing, but. Well, they paved the parking lot, so we're thinking about having our, just playing home games as road hockey. They built Maple Leaf Gardens in under six months. The entire thing from scratch, from the ground up. And as much as I'm hoping that J.L. Greitmeyer is lovely when it's done, I don't think it's going to be Maple Leaf Gardens. When people go back, they have not touched from the lobby into the building. The only thing being done in the hockey portion of J.L. Greitmeyer is a walking track. The rest of it is just an addition for dressing rooms. So they they tore what was there down. They've made the dressing rooms uh, very palatial. And the lobby is assuredly going to be nicer. And I know why. So the all the seats have stayed in? They haven't touched those? Nothing. Haven't, uh, tu- haven't touched a damn thing inside the building from, from that aspect. And the intent of the entire thing, which uh, was born in the ComChoice office in Dundas, was to put a second floor above the lobby for the uh, Sports Wall of Fame for Dundas. So two hockey seasons later and $7.2 million dollars, the uh, the honorees of the present Wall of Fame are stored somewhere. Hmm. It's wonderful. Well, let's move on to happier sort of things. As I say, we will talk about this more another time because it does seem rather ridiculous. Although I don't know if this is going to be any happier, Don. I was watching as you were bits and pieces of the Maple Leaf game on the weekend. And Zach Hyman got a penalty and has now been suspended two games for a late hit. There's no question it was a late hit on Charlie McAvoy of the Bruins. And so you look and you go, okay, um, that's a suspension. That's a suspendable hit now. The guy is coming. It's a dangerous hit. And so he gets games. Well, not long after that in the game, a Bruins player takes a huge run and jumps, leaves his feet and aims for the head of Morgan Riley, the Leafs defenseman. And the NHL says, no, that's fine. No suspension. We're not even going to have a hearing on that one. There have been other hits in the last week that people have said, that's an absolute sure thing, guaranteed suspension, and nothing from the NHL. Does the NHL have any clue? And this is an ongoing thing, Don. Whoever's in charge of player safety or discipline or whatever over the years, it's always been this way. Does the NHL have any idea how to actually enforce player discipline? Because I don't get the sense they do. Well, they do. And there's some pretty good hockey people involved in determining it. But it, first of all, it has to start on the ice with consistency with the officials. And and I think sometimes the message to the officials gets muddied a little bit. And what do you want called and what don't you want called? The thing that, that has forever since prior to Brian Burke doing this, which seemingly was a lifetime ago, confuses everyone. So if Zach Hyman's hit, which yes, was late, uh, my understanding is the NHL mandate is you have 0.6 seconds to hit a guy after he gets rid of the puck. Hyman's was 0.9. I, for the life of me, don't know how you stop realizing, oh my goodness, that's my point six seconds is expired. Well, he could I can't have peeled off at that point. He could. Have, he. I mean, he could have done and, something to try to avoid. And it. he didn't. No, he didn't. There's no question about it. But what? What really 
I think frustrates good hockey fans is. So now they've set the benchmark that that hit Hyman gave is two games. So everything worse than that will be more than two games. Theoretically. And, and that won't be the case, you see. It's the standard they set. The game before, Austin Matthews got cross-checked, pushed from behind into the boards. Now, he's Toronto's star player. He's just back from a shoulder injury, and everybody's hold, holding their collective breath, hoping he gets up, and he was fine. But there was no suspension there. And so the trouble that will come back and haunt them, when, if you looked at all of them in a series, is if Hyman's is two games, anything worse than that should be two games and up, and it won't be. And the biggest issue for me is that the guy, I think his name was, is it Wagner, I think, was the uh, the guy for Boston who yeah. took the run at Morgan Riley and, and left his feet and went after his head. It's not about being a Leaf fan or a Bruins fan or anything else. The issue is he got nothing because Riley jumped right back up and skated back into the play. If Morgan Riley had stayed down and gone off to the dark room with a head injury, probably that guy gets two or three games for that, if not more, and my point is, why are you giving a guy benefit of a break for something that he did? It had nothing to do with him. The fact that Morgan Riley didn't end up injured was had no part, nothing to do with his intent. His intent was to hit him in the head, and it could have gone very badly, or it could have been fine. If you make that move to try and do something dangerous, you should be penalized for it, regardless of what the outcome is. You should not be rewarded for bad aim. Or for a guy having a hard skull. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I, I, so Charlie McAvoy comes back. If Charlie McAvoy, as some people said, and I don't subscribe to this, but some people have said, if Charlie McAvoy was so brittle that a hit like that would injure him, then maybe he shouldn't have been on the ice yet back from his injury. Mm-hmm. I don't subscribe to that because I, I do think the hit was late. But I don't think you penalize a guy for the softness or hardness of their jaw or whether or not of the person they're hitting. It's what you did. And the NHL is just all over the map, Don, with this. There is no, I don't think there's an NHL player that could honestly tell you what is a suspendable offense and what isn't for sure. I think the hockey's so much better than it was 10 years ago. Sure. Athletes are better, more talented, faster. Small guys can play in the league. Mark Juris could have had a great career in the National Hockey League now. Um, and I certainly don't want to sound like hockey's friend, who is Don Cherry. But my thought process is, if Ty, Ty Domi was still playing, or as Grapes calls him, Ty Domi, was still playing for the Leafs, I'm not sure that happens. Because then there's a payback. And the way the league is, and the way Mike Babcock has been for a number of years... Detroit were winning Stanley Cups and proving that you didn't have to have uh, a heavyweight in the lineup to do it. Uh, Babcock was one of the very first coaches that went that route. But I, I, I really believe that the liberties would be redru- reduced dramatically if you have, uh, and God bless them, Bob Probert and uh, Ty Domi running around, just keeping everybody honest. But you, know? you have some teams with guys like that. Not many. Not many. But for And, and it, the, reason, the only reason I raise that is because that comes into play with what we're talking about. Because in a game with uh, Vegas and Washington, Tom Wilson, who plays for Washington, who's notorious for this stuff now, gets hit a little bit of his own medicine by Ryan Reeves, 
No penalty. No, no penalty, no suspension, even though it's exactly the kind of thing the NHL has been saying forever. We've got to get out of the game. And so is it just because it was Tom Wilson that we're going to let him eat some shoulder pad to teach him a lesson? Well, that's not the way to run a league. It'd be hard, it, it would be hard-pressed to think that that didn't play a factor in it. I think you're probably right. And again, it all goes back to, and, and whenever we talk about stuff like this, it drives me nuts. It all goes back to the player association and who do they defend? The guy that did it or the guy that got nailed? They always seem to defend the guy that got the guy that got nailed for the penalty and not the poor guy that's laying on the ice and you kinda wonder, aren't they all paying union dues here? But it can't I know every check is different. I know every incident, every circumstance is slightly different from the one before. There's no exact carbon copies, but they're close enough a lot of the time that it really can't be that difficult. And it seems as though the NHL twists itself in knots to not suspend guys. It seems like they twist themselves in knots to find a reason that they don't want to do this. When it seems to me you should be saying, if we want to get this stuff out of the game, we're going to twist ourselves into knots to get it out by giving suspensions. See, Even if it's not long suspensions, a game, two games, whatever. But it goes back to interpretation again. And I remember getting in trouble specifically one year, and I did did it half a dozen times as a referee. And, you know, that's back in the, the, the late 70s when things were really cuckoo out there in the early 80s. But there was always the instigator of the fight. We want to get rid of the guy that instigates the fight all the time. We want to punish that so we can stop the fighting in the games. And at least half a dozen times, I, there were incidents where I was refereeing, and a guy would slash a guy, like viciously across the knee pads. And the other guy would drop the gloves and try and beat the snot out of the guy that did the slashing, there'd be a fight. And, and if I was giving out an instigator penalty, I would give it out to the guy that did the slashing, because in my opinion, that's what started, that's what instigated the mm-hmm. fight and started it. There's no fight if he doesn't do that. Yeah, right. Not the aggressor, not the first guy whose gloves hit the ice. And I was, it was explained to me that I was doing it wrong. I didn't change it because I kept doing it. A couple supervisors said, the guy that drops the gloves instigates the fight. I said, I don't think that that's the case. So when you have, I didn't get suspended for doing it, but when you have interpretations like that and somebody else's interpretation, it really can change what the fans of the game look at. And I believe that, but Don, there are two different things at play here. One of them is what the officials are able to see and call and interpret on the ice. Yeah. And now there's two of them. And now there's two. And, and that's not what I'm talking about though, really, because no. guys are going to miss stuff. You can have someone between you and them. Your line of sight can be blocked. It moves very quickly. There's lots of reasons why a ref can miss something. And even though that affects the game at hand and the fans get frustrated, a referee can miss something honestly. he can on, he, It's not that he's picking sides. He can honestly not see something. And I get that. What I'm talking about is after the game, when you have the tape and you can watch the tape and you can see what a guy did, that's where I think the NHL is messing up because it's not live anymore. Then you have lots of time to look and to interpret and they're still making a mess of it. And that's where I don't get it. That's where I don't understand. See, with two referees out there and, and first of all, the NHL like to have a penalty call to, to do an assessment and there's two guys out there. And I say, as I did earlier... I don't like to see guys rewarded for a bad aim. Like if I take a swipe at you with my stick and and you duck and I miss you, to me that's a match penalty. 
You don't have to get hit in the melon to get the penalty called. And sometimes, which is why I alluded to um, an instigator situation and, and the different scenarios that can be there, if 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 one of the referees saw, I didn't see the, happened to, I must be getting another T or something, but I, I missed the O'Reilly thing, O'Reilly thing, is if the guy happened to miss him and the other referee got a good look at it, you can still call a match penalty. He Clearly, when you leave your feet and go after somebody's head and you miss, that's an intent That's an intent to injure. Riley was lucky, you know, maybe he doesn't get cold cocked or the guy happens to miss him. I still think it's a match penalty. And that's where I think a lot of the frustration comes in where there's an intent, but the result isn't dramatic, but so even, there's and, no penalty, and there's one no other, suspension. There's one other thing beyond that, which I hadn't even mentioned, and that is, if Riley gets hit in the head by that and directly in the head and gets a concussion or breaks his jaw or whatever else and is out for 15 games and you give the other guy a game, that's a fantastic trade-off. Yep. That's a fantastic trade-off. Especially, I would Especially take, for a premier player. Oh, yeah, if you're a number one defenseman. Imagine if you did that to Austin Matthews right before the playoffs and you take him out for the playoffs. That's an unbelievably amazing trade-off if you're the Bruins. Or vice versa, if it's Zach Hyman taking out Charlie McAvoy, who's a crucial piece of the puzzle for Boston. The NHL seems... This is where this is why I think they run into problems. They seem incapable of understanding how to do discipline. And I think some of the other leagues have struggled with it as well. And maybe it's just because the NHL has more issues because of the speed of the game and the way the game is played... But there is absolutely no consistency and there is absolutely no heavy fist on these things that there should be. And yet at the start of the year, it, when Wilson was serving a 20-game suspension. That's the one example. There were people saying, finally, they're going to crack down on these repeat offenders and they're going to start sending big messages. But how many times? But they send one and stop. But how many times did he have to do the exact same thing in succession before they came down hard on him? Yep. It was the third or fourth time he'd done the exact same thing. Again, where where this will come up again is when somebody does very something very similar or worse than what Zach Hyman did and gets no suspension, maybe gets two, or if the guy really drills the guy, he only gets three. I mean wait till somebody does this to Connor McDavid and he's out for two months. Yep. And we'll see what the suspension is. And I will bet you any money in the world, Don, that if even if you even if it was not all that dirty, if it was dirty-ish and Connor McDavid is hurt, that guy, whoever hits him, will be sitting for a long time. If they do that, the Oilers are going to have to be transferred back to the American League. The Because uh, <laughs> he, he sure is a one-man band out there. But I, I get your point. It's And it's always been a little... The superstars, rightfully so, in my opinion, which is a double standard... Deserve a little more protection. The suspension should be heavier for the better players, which doesn't mean you get to, you know, if a guy's a fourth liner, you get to run around and drill his head through the boards. But those guys are paying the bills and they're selling the sweaters and that's who people are going to see. But there has to be some level of consistency. And I just don't understand how the NHL can't find anybody in that job ever that is able to make any kind of consistency so that people can understand what's happening because nobody has a clue. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. It doesn't seem like it's a time to be talking about baseball because every time at this year when we start thinking about baseball, it is cold and it is not baseball-y, but winter meetings are about to start. 
And there are teams talking about trading or signing Bryce Harper for $400 million and trading for other guys and this guy. And for years, the Blue Jays seemed to always be in the mix at the winter meeting. So it was always something going on. They were looking to get guys. I mean, this is where, remember years ago before they won the World Series, it was at the winter meetings that they traded Tony Fernandez and Fred McGriff for Joe Carter and Roberto Alomar. This is where stuff happens and has for the Jays for years. There is not even a faint rumble of talk of the Blue Jays doing something significant at these winter meetings. People are saying if they do anything, it'll be to sign some low-end depth reliever or something. There is nothing. Are we at the point right now where the Jays are the most irrelevant they have ever been in all the years they have been a team? It's pretty close. I can't think of a time when there has been less, when this team has been less relevant. So there's, uh, the less relevant you are, the less scrutiny you get from the media, right? I mean, it's not like they're on the cusp of turning the corner and just needing a fifth starter to round everything out and a, you know, and a depth starter so they can sail to the World Series. So I think there's a couple reasons. First of all, that and the reporters that are on the beat are really scratching their head trying to figure out something to write about and can't can't even make anything up. Or, and or, perhaps it's the style of the new management team and they don't let things leak out. I mean, in the Cliff Fletcher era of the Toronto Maple Leafs, or, I mean, that that organization with Bill Waters, a buddy of mine who was assistant GM, it leaked worse than a tri- Titanic on rumors and everything else. So maybe these guys have got it buttoned down. That said, if they've had it buttoned down since they got here, they still haven't done anything significant, so there's really nothing to leak. So When the William Nylander discussions were going comment. on with the Leafs, there were no leaks. Nothing. Nothing, and yet it was talked about every day, and it was a big thing that was at the center of the media, but also the fans talking it. The office, you would talk about, wait, what's up with Willie Nylander? You would check the Twitter, you do whatever else. There is nobody talking about the Blue Jays at this point. About nobody, anything. Nobody seems to believe that the team has any hope of being competitive next year. And even with Vlad Guerrero Jr. coming up, and I, I would agree with that, nobody thinks they have a chance to be competitive. Nobody thinks they're going to have a chance to be competitive for a few years. And they got, they're saddled with these big contracts left over from Tulowitzki and Russell Martin, and they got rid of Donaldson. Um, it, it seems as though you would have a better chance talking about bladder control products with people at the office and getting people interested than in talking about the Blue Jays and their hopes right now. There seems to be just nothing. It is a flat line. Which is really sad. It's because, terribly because sad. Because for two years, the building was full again, and you couldn't not talk about the Toronto Blue Jays. Four years ago, we'd be talking about what additions they were going to make and not what a dreadful excuse for a major league baseball team is, and that's probably a little harsh, but you're right. When there is no prospect or seemingly prospect for you to play in the postseason, that's, it is what it is. The guys who are running this franchise and they, they are a mixed bag as far as whether people like them or don't like them, Shapiro and Atkins. But when you are 
Ross Atkins is the general manager. His job is to build the team. I don't I don't exactly know where the crossover happens with Shapiro because he's got his hand in it as well. But he is the president of the team. His job theoretically involves putting bums in the seats, putting people in the stands. You're absolutely right that they have managed to keep it buttoned down so there are no leaks. But if you're Mark Shapiro, are you not saying to Atkins, might be a good time to have a few leaks just to stimulate some conversation and put us on the front burner. I know we don't like to do this. I know we like to be secretive and I know we like to keep everything under the hat. Throw a few things out there that are completely made up. We're in the bidding for Bryce Harper. Just just to get people talking and interested. I have, Don, when I go to the point about irrelevance, I can't remember ever a time. I really can't from back and I, I mean, I became a regular watcher in the early 1980s. I can't remember a time when there were, seemed to be fewer people interested in what the Blue Jays were doing. That's the thing. The, the winter meetings have always been about who are we getting in the Rule 5 draft, Kelly Gruber and all these guys, or who are we trading or who are we signing? There's nothing. There is nothing. And Rogers don't seem all that concerned about it. Which makes no sense. Because if you're down 20,000 or 15,000 people a game. And no evidence it's not going to get worse. Exactly. And we're talking, let's say those tickets average $20. I think it'd probably be a higher average than that. But let's say it's $20 a ticket and you got 15,000 people that are not there. You can do the math on that one. And most people buy a hot dog or buy pop or buy popcorn or buy a beer or something. You're talking big, big money that's just draining out of that place. Well, you know, and and maybe I'm showing my age. I do that on a regular basis, especially if you get a look at me. Uh, Beeston was always funny. When he was president of the team, they brought him back. He was always entertaining, engaging. He could sell it for you a little bit. Even in the dim days. He could always make it interesting. There was always something to talk about. They would bring on, you know, that, you know, you know, we're, we're not exactly where we want to be, but you know, we've, uh, we've, uh, our winning percentage is, and we've won over 95 games over the most consistent basis of anybody in our division. And they could always bring up some obscure stat to talk about. And, but he never really was involved in the trades. He had to approve everything, but he didn't have his fingers. He wasn't out unless they needed him as the president of the baseball team to go and meet with Jack Morris to put the deal over the top because the president of the team came to see you. He wasn't making those decisions. He wasn't telling Pat Gillick what Pat Gillick should do, the way I understand it. Pat Gillick ran the baseball team, and they were a wonderful wonderful pair, and you have to give the credit. They each knew their lane, though. Sure they did. And I think he did that with Anthopolis. Uh, because, so it's gotta be Beeston that had the capability of doing that. He never thought he was anything other than what he was supposed to be. And those two seemed to work hand in hand, but you're right. They all knew their lane. They all knew their job. They knew the boundaries and everything else. And for the first time, I think ever, the president of the uh, Toronto Blue Jays is also the quasi general manager. I, and I, I, I it, it doesn't help. I don't think that the two of them, that Shapiro and Atkins, from everything I hear, are not universally, but widely despised. So you've got people running the team that a lot of the fans can't stand because they, and only 
because none of us, nobody knows them, but because what they've done with the team has only been to tear it down. There's been no evidence of these guys putting anything together yet. They came in after Anthopolis and after those good years, and it's been on a downward slide since they arrived. So people are not fans of theirs. They don't give anything. They don't talk. Shapiro doesn't show up at press conferences, even when stuff is happening. I just look at this and I think, if you're right, if I'm Rogers and I own this team and I'm seeing people vacating Blue Jay land in droves, surely you're going to do something to try and generate interest other than saying, no, 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 we keep everything under our hat. When the Leafs were not very successful slash kind of brutal in the 70s. Kind of brutal? The only thing that was consistent with them was Harold Ballard would be entertaining. There was always something to talk about. And if he couldn't sell the hockey team because it couldn't beat anybody, they were always in the newspapers. And if the Blue Jays signed somebody noteworthy, Ballard would be in the paper and he would soak up all the oxygen in the room because the Toronto Maple Leafs were there. And he wanted to make sure that they remained that way. And everybody did it. There was always something in the paper. Always. And and you could always call him and he'd say something. He There were more stories about uh, T.C. Puck in the paper than there were some of their players. But ba- Ballard was P.T. Barnum and he made it he made it interesting. Were these two guys, I think, probably lost a lot of their luster, had none, but but had whatever they would have been given by virtue of getting these jobs was right off the bat they come in and started ripping Anthopolis, who had just been in the playoffs two years in a row. The cupboard's bare. We're going to have to we – we can't live with these contracts. He's traded away all the prospects. Guerrero was a, a, an Anthopolis pick. So they weren't all gone. But when you come in and rip a Canadian who was the general manager who just had you in the playoffs for two years, tell me, I think they skipped the Dale Carnegie course because that's not how you make friends. No. And you want to know something? We got to break. You want to know something about all those dra- all those prospects that they talked about that the cupboards were bare? None of them are playing. None of them have been an impactful player in Major League Baseball. Not one. So you could say, oh, we had all these guys. Not one of them was going to make a difference for you. Yeah. They, did, they didn't give up Tony Fernandez. They didn't give up anything. They didn't give up anything. And so, I, again, I just don't get how you don't do something to get yourself talked about. That somehow silence is the gold standard here. And in a world where there's so many things vying for your attention, you've got to do something to get talked about. And when February rolls around and spring training, what's there, who's going to be excited about a team that has had no buzz at all? The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening. 911. 
Help is on the way. Angela Bassett and Peter Krause return in an all-new season of 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.